From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts for our backyard and beyond. Today, we're proud to present a conversation between Loyola Law alumna Christy Tate and Radhika Sutherland from April 12th of this year. The conversation will be about Christy Tate's book, Group, How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts, and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Hi guys, this is Radhika Sutherland, and I just want to welcome you all to a very special live podcast recording for the Podvocate. Um, this is very exciting. We haven't had an opportunity to do live audience recordings um, since, you know, the global pandemic. But um, we have Christy Tate with us, a pretty big name, and she agreed to do this. So welcome to our special live recording of the Podvocate here on April 12th. 2021. I'm with author Christy Tate, and we've got our Associate Director of Student Services, Jenna Silver, who is going to introduce Ms. Tate for us. Take it away, Jenna. Thanks, Radhika. Happy to be here. So Christy graduated from Loyola School of Law in 2003. After graduation, she worked as a litigator at Skadden Arps and as a law clerk for the Honorable Milton I. Shatter and the Honorable Elaine Bucklow in the Northern District of Illinois. She taught legal writing for several years at Loyola and most recently worked for six years as Associate Regional Counsel for the Social Security Administration. Christie's work has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, Pithead Chapel, McSweeney's, and more. Her debut memoir, Group, was published in 2020 and has been selected as a Reese Witherspoon's book club pick and a New York Times bestseller. Welcome, Christie. Thank you so much for being here with us. And Radhika, I will turn it back over to you. Yeah, and um, for our audience, I know it's small, which is nice. It's nice to have these intimate groups. Um, You guys are more than welcome to ask questions at the end. And if it's okay with you, we'll include them in our podcast episode. Um, So if you ask a question at the end, just say your name and your role at the law school, if you have one. Um, and then we can include it in the podcast as well. And I would really appreciate that. And if you don't want to, then obviously just let us know. It's no problem. So Miss Tate, Christy, um, first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Uh, your name is often one that comes up when we talk about our famous Loyola Law <laughs> alumni. Oh my gosh, thank so, you so much for having me. <laughs> I'm so thrilled to have this opportunity. Um, you know, it's exciting. It's exciting when you see people who are making it in different areas of the world and they, they it's Loyola Law alums. So we're so proud of you and we're so honored to have you. Um, I wanna start by asking about your journey to law school. So how you ended up at Loyola and if you always knew you wanted to be a lawyer. That's a great question. I have, thank you for having me and taking the time out. I know you guys are all busy law students um, or busy somehow in the capacity of the law school. Um, I am not a person who came from a family of lawyers. I didn't know there were two lawyers I knew growing up in my community and they were really rich. They were men and they were rich, which I certainly clocked. We were middle-class. Oftentimes there were financial strains. It wasn't poverty, but it was not 
there were people way ahead of us. And so when I got out of, I went to college, studied English. I loved reading. I didn't have a desire to write. I think that was buried. The, the idea of being an artist was very buried in me. And I thought, well, I have to be a teacher or a lawyer. <laughs> and I was scared to be a teacher. I was scared. And so I thought, well, I'll just go for more school. And when I decided to go to law school, I, I knew I wanted to be in Chicago. It was the case that I'm not a stellar LSAT taker. And so I knew I, I reached for, you know, the elite schools in Chicago. And I wasn't surprised when I didn't get in. And I had opportunity, I think I had a school in Texas, but I was like, I know I, I just knew I needed to be in Chicago. And one thing that was really great about Loyola, Pam Bloomquist, she was the Dean of Admissions at the time. I'm not sure she's still around. This was a long time ago. She called me at my office. I was working as a paralegal at Jones Day and she called me to tell me, that's how I found out I got in. And you know, you hear a lot about admissions and just the whole rat race of it for professional school. And to get that personal phone call, it just really was like, okay, this is, this is yeah. the place. I was pretty shut down. If you've read my book, you know, but I did know that it mattered that someone called me. And so that's how I ended up at Loyola. Yeah. Loyola is special that way. I, we have so much in common beyond our love, deep love for therapy. Um, I, even our journey. So I was a therapist before I came to law school, but therapy was my second career. I was a you know, a molecular biologist before that. So um, it was a windy path to law school. And I also um, tried for the elite schools, if that's what we want to call them. And it didn't work out. I ended up Loyola. And once I got there, I was like, I don't know why I thought I'd be anywhere else. It, I kind of fell into it and it was a perfect fit um, for me because of the community. And it sounds like you, um, felt something similar. So can you talk to me about just starting law school and um, where you were in your life and if you had any idea of where you wanted to go from there? I distinctly remember starting law school because I was so happy. I picked law school very consciously, not because I love the law. I mean, I, as I said, I was very interested in the notion of having a career that would give me some power and money is power. And I didn't know nothing, none of the corporate jobs sounded appealing to me at all. Like I was like, oh, in my law school application essay, I was like, I would like to work for the ACLU and mm -hmm. I would like to work on behalf of people with non-normative bodies. What? <laughs> like, that's like little idealistic Christie. Like I thought there was a, there was some kind of a law. It was like, around this time, I first heard of like lawsuits against airlines for bodies that didn't fit into the seats, mm -hmm. standard seats. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh, I want to fight on behalf of not the airlines, but the people whose bodies don't fit in public spaces. Yeah. Um, that's not what I ended up doing. Um, when I started, I was in a very, very deep depression. I don't think I knew it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't know it. I thought I just need to get going in. My, I just need to launch. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it was like mental illness. Um, and I was really addicted to achievement and law school really, it's a wonderfully intellectual time. It's a, I, I learn, I mean, there's so much to learn, especially it starts like that. You know, you're off to the races, read, 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 go to class. 
um, prepare. Um, so I loved it intellectually and I was using the intellectual stimulation to like self-medicate, if yeah, that makes sure. any sense. Absolutely. Um, and I was really, really lonely. I didn't even know that word, but I was really lonely and despairing about my personal life. Mm-hmm. So I just poured every ounce of energy into law school mm-hmm. and achievement. And it, it worked out really well. <laughs> I was able to achieve, but by the time I finished my first year, my, my personal life or my, my mental health was kind of in tatters because yeah. I had not addressed. I just shoved it all down, trying to learn the Civ Pro. And one other thing I remember when I first started, I don't know if they still do this at Loyola, but like the very first Saturday you go for like orientation. I remember it was a Saturday, we had to take a writing test just to mm-hmm. sort of assess where you are in your writing. And I, it was like compare and contrast, some very low level type of law case or something. And I made it, I psyched myself out so bad and I, I made it really hard. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to write with like semicolons and M dashes and be sophisticated. I was trying so hard that I, my, my writing got flagged and I had to go to these special classes for people who didn't know how to write. Oh my goodness. Who needed some remedial help. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, but that's, I've noticed in my life, I have a pattern where I go into a new situation and I start with a failure, either perceived or actual. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I view myself as an underdog. And then I just work, work my way out of this perceived hole that I literally put myself in. But I was always embarrassed that I went to Saturday school. Most of the students who were there the year in the section that I went to, English was not their first language. And so right. there I am like, oh my God, I'm going to fail law school. Yeah. But I, I recognize I had a part to play, like psychologically, I think I failed that test to like psych myself out. Yeah, it's it's so interesting hearing you speak. You you talk like someone who has been to a lot of therapy, who really <laughs> understands the roots of what's going on with them. And I love it. It's so refreshing as a therapist, especially having been in law school for three years, people are generally not that aware or self-aware at all. So I can, I can, I can hear the work that you've been um, putting in over the years. Um, oh, thank you. Good. I mean, it's not supposed to be a compliment, but I guess it is in a way. <laughs> I take it as a compliment. It is, it is, it is in a way because it's just, it's a good advertisement for therapy. It's like, do you want to be this in touch with your own emotions and understand why you do the way you do? Then go to therapy. I'm, I'm one of those therapists who feels that 100% of society could benefit from therapy. So I just love, it makes me so happy to see what it can do for people. Um, So for any of us who have read your book, uh, we know you're nothing if not honest. Um, So you've already touched on your mental health in law school, but were you at all aware of your mental health before beginning law school? And then how quickly did you become aware of it and that it was deteriorating? Sure. I knew before law school in college, I had an eating disorder. I mean, I knew intellectually I had an eating disorder starting. It really ramped up my sophomore year in high school. So I'm 15. I wasn't even driving yet. Things It was not subtle. We'll put it that way. When you're bulimic, it's not like, hmm, I wonder if there's a problem here. It's like, oh, wow. Whoa. Yeah. So I knew that. And by the time I got to college, by the time I was 19, I hit bottom essentially with my eating disorder. And I had a moment like any, like a dark night of the soul where I was like, oh, I'm going to die. I could die. 
I could really die doing this to my body with food. And I got into a 12 step program Mm -hmm. and it was transformative and it really arrested the bulimia, which is a wonderful thing. And I made lots of connections, but it wasn't, it didn't cure me of all that. I had more than the one 12 step program could really address, but I definitely went into, by the time I went into law school, you know, I had a set of understandings about myself. I had these tools, wonderful tools you get from a 12 step program, but I also, there was a lot that was going unchecked and I just thought, well, I will just go to more meetings. And for some people that works, if your eating disorder is your only problem, go to more eating disorder meetings. I had a different set of circumstances and uh, around relationships and relating to people that I couldn't. And even in meetings, I could feel myself, people would get close to me and then they could only get so close. And then I would shut down and I was really upset about being single. And that's just, that can't be addressed. All of that cannot be addressed in a one hour meeting about eating disorders. So I had some rudimentary understanding But when I look back and I think about that first day in the therapy session with the therapist who's the subject of my book, I, he was like, you're, you're lonely. And I was like, I don't know. Am I like, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that word and I didn't apply it to myself. I was like, well, I live alone and I'm super sad about being single and I don't know how to have people. I guess I am lonely. Like I was so out of touch for how in touch I thought I was. And the first time he said to me, do you feel shame? I was like, oh no, oh no, I don't, what's that? I thought shame was for survivors of incest or pedophiles, like this really aberrant behavior. I didn't know it was like really what had been driving me my whole entire life. So it was a steep learning curve. Yeah. It's sometimes it's just about putting those words to feelings that you've always known existed. And those words are hard to apply because we have our own definition of them or society has told us what they mean. So it's not something you would ever apply to yourself. And it takes digging, digging, digging further and further to really understand A, the definition of those words and B, how they apply to yourselves. So um, I'm with you on that journey. Was mental health something you ever discussed with your classmates or administration during law school? Was that something, and I, we're talking about a different time. I think in 2021, it's often discussed, at least amongst my friends and my classmates. I've had professors that mention it. I know that our administration really cares about it, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering when you were in law school and when everyone else who's a lawyer that didn't go to law school in 2021, um, I want to know what the conversation about mental health was like. Was there a stigma? Um, were you able to discuss it? It did feel extremely unspeakable. Like mm-hmm. I didn't tell anyone that I was in a 12-step program. They saw the way that I ate and they knew something was up, but I never told them where I went on Saturday mornings and Tuesday nights. And And as an institution, springs, the beginning of spring semester, so this would have been January or February, Dean fought at the time, he was the Dean of Students. He came around and he said, hey, I just wanna let you all know that if you're having any kind of like stress or feel like you need some extra support, there's free counseling for law students. You just go to this office, you fill out a form 
and um, you can have a free evaluation and free therapy. And I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, something made me, I mean, I knew I needed something more. And it, my recollection is that it was couched as if you're stressed about finals or it was okay in my mind. And that's how I heard it discussed. It was okay to be stressed out or anxious about your professional success, but to sort of be like wallowing and sort of like shame or anorexia, that was not exactly part of the discussion. But what's interesting to me is when I went to the place to fill out, I, I went and did an evaluation so I could get an appointment. I saw like three people from my section were there and we never talked about it. Like, I mean, part of that's good boundaries and privacy, sure. But also one of them was like in my study group, a very good friend of mine. And the other one was a guy I had lunch with like every Friday. And I'm, I, to this day, I'm surprised that we never had any kind of a discussion like, hey, are you, are you okay? Or, or, or even just like, are you feel like you're getting the help you need? Um, I didn't need to know everybody's backstory, but now I'm so nosy and open about things. I would be like, I would let someone tell me I'm not going there with you, but I would start the conversation. For sure. That is, it's so interesting to compare my own experience. My 1L year, um, we talked about mental health a lot to the point where my friends sought out mental health services, began medication for anxiety, because I was kind of a resource in that way. You know, I was a therapist who was in a 1L as well. Um, and I was very open and always really encouraged talking about that. Um, it's it's kind of wild to think that you would see a close friend in that situation. And I'm, I, I'm not saying this about you, just around the time and the stigma that was associated with it. Um, and especially when we all know how stressful law school is and, yeah. and um, how comforting it could have been potentially to be able to discuss that with um, close friends and confidants who are going through the same thing. Um, yeah. I feel like, you know, we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot, the legal system has in that way by shutting down those conversations. But I, I am hopeful that it's changing. I think so. I think this conversation is proof of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you just discussed what motivated you to seek out resources and it was kind of um, an administrator opening the door talking about stress. How did you end up with Dr. Rosen? And that's the doctor you mentioned in your book group. Um, it seems serendipitous that you ended up in his group somehow. And I want to encourage people to keep trying until they find that fit, because it doesn't always happen right away. Um, so if you could tell us a little more about your journey to finding Dr. Rosen. Yeah, I feel really lucky because what happened at the end of my 1L year, the funding had been cut for the on-campus counseling. So I was going to lose the therapist I had been seeing at Loyola once a week, and I was I mean, I wasn't even, it was a new, it was a new therapeutic relationship. So I wasn't devastated, but I was a little bit like, oh, that's not good. And that summer I found out I was first in my class and I became unraveled because what I, what, what that so starkly showed me was I'm bright and I'm disciplined and I'm hardworking and I can go from failing the writing test to first in my class. I can fix this in, in the sense of I can, I can achieve, 
but I knew that what was inside of me, the loneliness, the lack of meaningful relationships, the feeling of, am I going to die alone had just become a blare in my head. And I couldn't fix that. It wasn't like mastering con law. It was something that I just got worse and worse at it. People were farther and farther away. My dates were even more disastrous than they had been before, but I was first in my class and that disparity made me feel like, I don't know, it really, I was starting to have suicidal ideation and I knew not to mess with that. And how I found Dr. Rosen was I start. so I, this is what I did this, my one all summer, I went back and forth to my internship where I made like $8 an hour. And then I went to 12 step meetings and that's like it. And I was starting to cry a lot at meetings. Like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I, I don't feel any better. I'm first in my class. I don't feel any better. And oh, people were, people were starting to recommend their therapist to me. And I was like, I'm a law student. I don't have any money. I don't have any money and I don't have any insurance. And um, this one woman pulled me aside. What was different about her was that she, I saw a change in her. Her light had come on. There was a radiance about her and a peace. I thought, huh, that looks appealing to me. And she said, oh, I'm doing therapy. It's my therapist. I'm like, oh, you too? But she said two magical things. One, it's group and it's cheap. So then I was like, now you have my attention. It's like one third the price to go to a group versus individual. I thought, okay. All I heard was the price thing. I wasn't picturing the other people. And then she also said, oh, my therapist is so happy. He just got married. And you know how you, when you look back at those things, like those things were compelling to me. I was like, Ooh, I wonder if he could get me married. Like I couldn't even go on a second date, much less get married. But I thought, Oh, this guy, this guy's going to know what to do with me. And I went to see him. And when I think back to that, and I, I've been there ever since I just went this morning. So I'm still there. I love the idea of what you said about shopping around because I was really vulnerable. I was super vulnerable. I was also set to make a lot of money. I know I keep talking about money. <laughs> I sound like such a materialistic person. But when I look back and I think if I had gotten in the hands of somebody who not only what didn't have my best interest at heart or wanted to take advantage of me, I would have probably signed up because I just was so desperate. I wanted, I wanted change. I would have given away everything to feel better. And I ended up in a situation that for me was therapeutic and transformative. And I feel really lucky I got there because I do hear that a lot shop around, but when you're depressed or you're anxious or you're close to a crisis, the idea of like, I'll see Dr. Bob, I'll go see Dr. Deepa. Like you don't have a lot of, I didn't have a lot of spare energy for this. So I feel like I got really lucky. Yeah. Um. I guess when I say shop around, what I encourage people to do is not give up on therapy rather than shop around. That's, I think that's what I mean to say is that like you go somewhere and it doesn't feel great. It yeah. just seems like whatever. So you go again, you give it another chance. And at that point, instead of giving up on the concept of therapy altogether, maybe seeking out a different way to experience therapy, whether changing from an individual to group or finding a different therapist. That's more what I mean about shop around instead of looking for the perfect fit, because it's not, it's not going to feel right at yeah. first. Um, I mean, for some people it does. Uh, I hope for any patient who walked through my door or if I walked through their door at the hospital, then they felt like this was a great fit right away. But I, I'm realist. I'm, I'm, I'm a realist in that way. And I know that um, 
people give up on therapy very quickly because of their relationship with their therapist or lack of one. So um, I, I, I really appreciate you talking on that because it's important. It's important to keep at it, even if it doesn't feel right at first and maybe seek out a different. That's true. I also think that there's a lot of cultural messages that really work against the reality of therapy. I, I thought I would be seeing major strides by definitely by six months and the strides were there, but they weren't as big as they are on TV. Like I thought I'm going to have an awesome boyfriend by summer, you know, and that did not happen. And the idea that therapy could be 30 days or 60 days or, you know, any kind of time limit, like if you're untangling for me, I was untangling a lifetime of bad habits and isms and eating disorder like there was just a lot going on and it took a while to unravel and I don't see a lot of stories that sort of really tease out it it might take a while it it doesn't mean it doesn't work it doesn't mean you will never get where you want to go but sometimes it takes more than a year or two and I want to go back to a comment you made before about how it wasn't just the dis- eating disorder. There was so much going on. Um, I I would be shocked and amazed if someone presented with an eating disorder and it was just the eating disorder, literally nothing else. I think that it's so human to be um, multifaceted and layered and our trauma building on on itself over the years and burying things and them resurfacing later. I mean, that's all such a like integral part of the human experience. So um, I'm sure for almost everyone now, we shouldn't speak in absolutes, but I am almost certain that anyone who's experiencing an eating disorder or anxiety or loneliness or shame has so much other stuff to unpack also, as we all do. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, you've, you've probably seen more of that as a therapist than I have as a therapy patient, but it's a pretty com. Everybody's complex, and there's there's lots to do in therapy. For sure. Um, so we've talked a lot about law school. Um, I want to talk about the transition from law school to the legal field and actually working, and how your awareness of your mental health traveled with you. If it was an easy transition. Um, if it was something that you could do in law school, but then had a hard time doing professionally, um, I'd love to talk about the transition. Transition, and that's it's kind of selfish because I'm about to graduate, and I would love pointers on it. Honestly, I feel really lucky that I addressed my mental health issues um, very concertedly starting my second year of law school. So I got into group second year of law school. And so I had two years under my belt of group. By the time I graduated, I was in two groups. So I went to therapy twice a week, two different groups. And I feel so grateful that I, that just was in place. Like I think of it as like a scaffolding for who I wanted to be. And you're busy. I, I'll speak for myself. I was really busy in law school and it's just nothing compared to starting your starting my career. Like when I got pulled into cases, like my first year as a lawyer, I didn't know when I was going to go to the gym or go pick up my dry cleaning. It wasn't like that nonstop, but there were periods like that. And I also didn't know that I was allowed to say like, 
I'll be back in an hour. I need to go pick up my laundry or whatever. Um, so that was something I had to learn as a young lawyer. So I was really grateful. And I remember the night before I, I was starting work on a Thursday. I have no idea why. And at that time I was in two Wednesday groups. So I go to my, I knew I was going to keep the morning one because I was allowed to start work. I would arrive at work at 915. That's totally fine. The afternoon one, my afternoon group was like Wednesday at 3.30. I'm like, what lawyer can just walk out on Wednesdays at 3.30? So I go to the group and I'm like, well, bye everybody. I'm gonna start my job and I have really learned a lot here. And everyone's like, whoa, hold on. What are you talking about? I was like, lawyers can't just leave. You can't, I have a job now. And Dr. Rosen said to me, aren't you allowed to take a lunch? I was like, I guess, I don't even know. Yeah, sure. He's like, you take on Wednesdays, you take your lunch at 3.30. And I was like, maybe. And if you have to leave or come late, leave early or come late, why don't you just try it and see? And it had never occurred to me. I thought for sure, I just have to not do this. And so I'll just, I'll try it for a month and we'll see. And every Wednesday, some, it just like worked out. Like I didn't leave my office. The, the group was like 3.30 to five. And I was too, I'd be sitting at my desk like, can I go? Can I really go? And when you're at a, when you're a professional, you can come and go. Like I could, I couldn't do that every day, but I would leave about, I would get in a cab at like 3.55. I would go over to the office, go to group. And I would like run back to the office. I was, go, it was like a, an extra long lunch hour, but then I stayed till like seven or eight o'clock. I got all my work done. It was never a problem. I would tell my secretary I'm going out. And I was amazed. I had no idea that was even possible had Dr. Rosen not said, why don't you just try it? And what I discovered, what I think for me is the opportunity to go and get that support, dump out all my, whatever was on my mind, whatever I was carrying, dump it. I come back, I'm so much more productive. By having that, I, did, I wasn't burdened. And I was, a, I've, every job I've ever had as an adult, I've been one of the most efficient people and I think that's related to having so much support for my mental health. It just, it doesn't get in my way because there's a place to take it. Do you feel that workplaces, firms, and law schools have a responsibility to address mental health more strongly or pr even provide those resources? What do you think, especially like a top five firm like Skadden, where we know the stress and anxiety is... I mean, it's, it's, it's incomparable to a lot of other workplaces, honestly, just because of the nature of being a big firm like that. Do you feel that there is a responsibility on the administration or the firm partners and leaders to um, account for the mental health of the people in their building? I do. I think there is a responsibility to address it, to name it, to do... I mean, I, I have been so heartened as a practicing attorney and we have to do CLE. The CLE that's now available um, related to drug and alcohol use and anxiety and mental health. There's a ton of mental health CLEs. It's so heartening to see and to hear these conversations happening. I do think, I think at any level, I just left the government, we would routinely get messages. Here's the number for the employee assistance program here's who to call, especially with the pandemic. That's anybody who's stressed out, let's just layer on 
a global pandemic and now you've got to work from home while your kids do PE next door to you. So I think I, I personally in the places where I have worked, there's been an increasing awareness of social, emotional, mental health um, concerns. And I think that that's been hard won. When I was at Skadden, there were people who burned out and, and a few of them burned out fatally in, in ways that we all, we all sort of knew. And it's not my responsibility to keep someone from drinking themselves to death or whatever, but I do want to be in organizations where the mental health resources are front and center and they are talked about. They're not just, you're not just told about them on your first day and no one ever brings them up again because the reality is there's a mental health epidemic going on and the statistics for lawyers and mental health peril are pretty staggering and to not know them feels like wanton, wanton negligence. Yeah. I was thinking about this a lot when you were talking about your um, addiction to achievement. Mm. I feel like law school attracts those kind of people, right? By the nature of the beast. It's so, it is a drug for people who like to achieve. Yeah. And, and there's so many type A people in the same place and you graduate with those people and then they all go become lawyers in the same places. So yeah. it's always amazed me that I mean, obviously everyone is different, but sometimes our neuroses and our mental pathologies are similar in similar fields. I just sure. pattern. I'm sure there's research out there about it. I maybe should have looked into that a little bit, but yeah, I guess that's not really a question. It's just, I, I'm just like piggybacking on the point that you made earlier that it, it, it should be, in my opinion, front and center everywhere because we've all gone through the same things and we've all signed up for the same thing. So we all have like a similar um, thread there. And that means that our pathologies and neuroses would be similar as well. So, yeah, I think that's true. I, and I think about like what, what law school, my law school experience, had I not gotten the help that I got, the intervention to help me work with my loneliness, my anxiety, depression, et cetera, I would have left Loyola thinking that the world is hostile, law school is hostile, the law profession is un, unwittingly just hostile and competitive because that's what I was carrying. But because I was able to address some of my internal demons, I was able to view it as all the things that there's a dark side to being a lawyer and an achievement uh, oriented, but there's also the, the bright side, like to be around really bright people who are really motivated, who challenge me and keep me on my toes and help me reach academic and intellectual heights that I couldn't do on my own or without the law degree, without Loyola, without my colleagues, I was able to really attach to and benefit from the, the good side of all that instead of wallowing in, in the, what's can be very self-destructive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of a loaded question, but looking back, would you have done anything differently? That's such a great question. I, for a long time, I think until I wrote my book, I had the idea that, oh, when I had the opportunity, I should have transferred to Northwestern 
sort of had that narrative in my head for a long time. And my husband actually graduated from the Northwestern Law Program as well. And his, his alumni magazine will come and I'll be like, you know, <laughs> like ours is better, you know. And I think through writing the book, something switched in me where I had this real acceptance because at the end of the day, I ended up at the same place that I would have been shooting for at Northwestern. At Northwestern, I would have, like, I probably would have said, where should I get a job? And people would have said, well, the best firm is Skadden, go to Skadden. And I sat there with tons of kids from Northwestern. So I think about that now. And when I look back and I have these really rich relationships, like just this morning, I emailed my law school roommate because I heard her wedding song, a super random song that came up on my Spotify list. And I texted her, I was like, is this your wedding song or am I misremembering from 20 years ago? And the relationships that I started developing in my one L year at Loyola, where there's a, there's a chillness and a, and a humanity and a, there's a lot of public interest and the family law clinic people, like all of that mixed together is who I am and who I wanted to be as a lawyer and a person. So now I, now I can say there's nothing I would have done differently, but I will hop to years, years of thinking like, oh, I should have gone to Northwestern. And that's just prestige. I'm just like, I wouldn't have made better friends. I wouldn't have had a different job. That's just a hundred percent like status seeking. And I already know what that got me. I mean, again, there are similarities. So I, when I was telling you about myself earlier, it was literally that I was waitlisted at Northwestern. So I came to Loyola as a placeholder and I thought I was going to transfer back to Northwestern a year later. And it took me less than like a semester at Loyola to know that there was a reason I was at the school and it was exactly that the community and the like care and passion about public interest and the the way I've gotten to know the faculty and administration and my classmates and the Loyola alum network, it's just the only thing I would go back and do differently is like tell myself, you don't, why do you want that? And it's exactly it. It's prestige seeking. And, and I, I would not have wanted to admit that about myself before, but I can say it now towards the end of my law school career. That's exactly what it was. So you're way ahead of me. It took me like 20 years, (laughs) you know, going through, my program to become a therapist forced me to do a lot of introspection. And the wonderful thing about becoming a therapist is that my professors constantly encouraged us to seek our own therapy. So it was, it was like very different, I think, than all other graduate and um, higher education programs. And that every single one of my professors was like, did you guys go to therapy? Are you going to therapy? Are you going to counseling? Um, They really encouraged it so that we could be the the best helpers we could. You can't help someone unless you're helping yourself. That's so good to hear. So that's, I mean, that's why I got there. Otherwise it probably would have taken me a really long time also. Um, So do you have any advice for current law students or for those of us who are about to graduate and enter the workforce? I know that's very generic and. Yeah, what I would say to law students, even if you're about to graduate, you still have you know, I didn't really get busy in my career. It, it, looking back, there was a slow ramp up. You would have thought someone gave me one thing to do. And I acted like, oh my God, I have to write a brief like Clarence Barrow. 
Um, the truth is there was a slow ramp up and that's probably true in lots of workplaces, not all of them, but you have time now. And if there's something that you, you know is like tugging at you, you may have a problem like mm, my relationship to the internet or gambling or food, you have a really beautiful opportunity. Like it's stressful to study for the bar, but it's not, you probably won't do that all day long. You have an opportunity right now and you're about to have, if you're going to have a job, you're about to have some really good insurance, I hope. <laughs> um, and you have a, like, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait to address anything that is pulling you down or standing in your way. And if you don't have those things, Godspeed, may long, may it last. But if you do, there's lots of resources. And the other thing I would say to anybody about therapy, but especially law students, so much of law school and being a lawyer is so serious. Like the stakes feel high. And when I worked at the government, we had to, we talked to the courts all the time. I happened to be in a field where our agency lost 70% of our cases. So I was always losing. <laughs> it was really not great for my self-esteem. But what I would say is, about therapy, if you've never tried it is, don't forget that sometimes it's really fun. Like I have so much fun in group therapy that that could be because I'm comfortable there. I've been there 20 years. I know the people we've grown, they've watched me grow up. But even if it was just me and Dr. Rosen, there's sometimes when you're going in there, you're reporting a victory, something funny happens. Like it's not all a veil of tears. The kind of therapy that I've done has not been like, tell us about your father. What about your skeevy uncle? That stuff comes up or it doesn't, but there's lots of dis discovery is a really vivifying, enlivening process. And it's not all heavy because I think there's an idea that it's like, I'm just going to go sit on this couch and cry all the time. That hasn't been my experience. There's been a plenty of that. <laughs> there's been falling off the couch to scream and cry but there's lots of other places to discover. There's a lot of light to be found in therapy. And I would just, I would say you don't have to wait. Why wait? Thank you so much for saying that. I, I, I also find therapy fun because I mean, we're lawyers and we like to talk and we like, everyone likes to talk about themselves. I mean, like who doesn't want to just tell, tell their own life story all the time. So I, I would know say, I would say too, for law students, um, and I've seen this because my first group was all doctors and lawyers. So it was all professionals. The group I'm in now has three or four lawyers. One's no longer practicing. The thing about lawyers is you might have to work harder to find a therapist who's smart enough. And I'm not saying I'm just, there's something about the, any professional student, anybody who's professional you've, you've, you're, you're setting yourself above, right? I mean, you've gotten extra education to the tune of thousands of dollars in extra years. I think what I have seen among my friends and in the people I've seen come into Dr. Rosen, it's, it might take a special person who's, and I'm not saying they have to come from Harvard or Yale or any of that smart people go to school everywhere, as we all know, but your your intellect you have chosen a job that's for your intellect and so you're you're going to have to find a smart therapist that was something i found out as well yeah you should ask my husband what it's like to be married to a therapist lawyer he loves it 
<laughs> Lucky guy. Um, so, I, I mean, I'll just wrap up. It's been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your your candid willingness to talk about mental health. Um, but your book has gotten so much attention and excitingly, like Jenna mentioned, um, many well-known people, including Reese Witherspoon have talked about it. And um, that's a lot of attention. So how has that affected your relationship with therapy or your relationship with your group, especially because you write about that? Yeah. Um, how has it affected the concept in general for you or has it? That, no, it definitely has. That's a great question. I feel really grateful that I'm traveling. I plug in twice a week with the people about whom I've written and they knew about the book and they knew about it for years. So it wasn't like a gotcha. But guess what, guys? So that was really good. I like the way that we all ha handled that. <clears throat> but at the same time, when the book came out, I was having this, incre this incredible, I was on an incredible ride and I was the face of this whole process. And I think that there were some moments where the group was like, and I'm coming into group like, oh my God, you guys, Howard Stern talked about my book today. And the group was happy and they celebrated with me, but the group is full of five other people who have really big lives too. And there was no way it was gonna be like the Christie show. And I'm grateful for that because that keeps me in check. Um, but there was definitely where it got a little tricky was, like at one point there were some companies who were like looking to maybe option the book to make a film and people were very nervous about that. Like what they could totally, they could totally warp what we do. And the truth is they could, if I sell the option to the book, then those people get to do whatever they want. That's what the money's for. <laughs> so um, that got a little bit tricky. And um, I, what I'm grateful for now, now the riot is sort of like subsided, like the big crescendo is sort of, and now I'm back to normal life. And I'm really grateful that that's just been consistent. My mental health treatment has carried me when nobody even knew I was writing, when people were rejecting the book through the whole thing. And now I just, I just keep going because it's in the rhythm of my life, which I'm really grateful for. And the, the, the group has been there to sort of remind me like, the work we do here is important and you can tell stories out there all you want, but when we log in and we do our work, we're all here together and I'm not more special or less. I don't have to be quiet just because something great happened to me, but I don't have to take up the whole Zoom screen. And that's been really just a wonderful source of support. And I can't, I don't know how other writers do it who like have this kind of experience. Like I hope they're all in therapy because it's a trip. It's a mind trip. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you and getting to know you beyond your book. Um, and I highly recommend everyone in law school, but even if you're not in law school, if you're just like a living adult in the world, um, reading books like group can really um, encourage people to seek treatment in ways that they wouldn't have considered before. So um, I really appreciate the work that you've done just in advancing mental health awareness in our society as well. Yeah, anything I can do to open the conversation or let people know about a tool like group that they didn't know, I'm super here for that. And it's worth exposing myself and, <laughs> and all my glory or whatever. I'm glad to be part of it. Thanks for having me. I really, I really love Loyola and all that it gave me and the part that it plays in my story. I'm, I'm really lucky. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. 
Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our associate editors are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our editor-in-chief is me, Leanne Jossen. Special thanks to Professor John Dane for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.